Good evening, church. It's nice to be here. My name is Paul. If I have yet to meet you, I'm one of the pastors here. Keep your Bibles open. I'm going to pray for us as we come to this part of God's Word. Father, we love you and we adore you. And Father, we want to be your children tonight who listen attentively to your voice. Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you that as you promise, it will not return empty. So we invite you now to do your powerful work in our lives. Spirit of God, would you illuminate uh, the text to us? Would you open our ears, open our eyes to see glorious truths in your word? And we are set for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, on the screen is one of my favorite quotes by a guy called C.S. Lewis. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And we are, we are far too easily pleased. We are pleased with all that this world has to offer. We are pleased with this offer of the false promises of purpose and satisfaction and fulfillment in all the things of the world. All these empty promises of sex and sun and property and power and possessions and fitness and family, all these things that promise you so much and our desires are not too strong. They're too weak for Jesus. We haven't grasped who Jesus is and the, the infinite joy. See, there was the infinite joy that is offered to you and to me when we encounter Jesus Christ. That's what was on offer to us. And I, I love this quote because I, I became a Christian in 1990. That's 33 years ago, age 20. And to be honest, for the first 10 or so years of my Christian life, I loved Jesus, I was saved, I was a believer, I was born again. But if I'm perfectly honest, I was like a half-hearted creature. I hadn't been captivated by Jesus, I hadn't surrendered everything to Jesus. He wasn't my all, he wasn't my, my everything. And I wasn't experienced that, that infinite joy, that deep-seated security and satisfaction that, that would come when I fully surrendered to Jesus. And by this time, I was at Bible college. But I, my desire for Jesus was still too weak. And I kept meeting these other Christians, and I used to call them the, the full-on-for-Jesus Christian. And they oozed Jesus, and they were captivated by Jesus, and I used to look at them and think, I want what they've got. And I remember reading from Philippians chapter 3, it says this, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them nothing or garbage or rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in Christ. I want to know Christ. And that's what I deeply wanted for everything else in my life to be lost compared to knowing Jesus. 
And when I surrendered to Jesus and was captivated by Jesus, I then discovered this intimate, infinite joy. And all the things of this world became strangely dim compared to knowing Jesus. And that's what Matthew 13 is all about. In this chapter, Jesus is showing us the the riches, the beauty, the blessings, the excitement of, of really knowing Jesus. He shows what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven that he calls it. That's the repeated phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. And when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about that place called heaven that we're heading to. Because the kingdom of heaven has already started. The kingdom of heaven has been ushered in with the coming of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. The, the, the kingdom of heaven has been inaugurated by Jesus' first coming. And so the kingdom of heaven is, is, is people like you and I who are living now under the, the rule and the reign of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is what it means to be in the kingdom now, heading for heaven, heading for eternity. And what's this kingdom of heaven like? What does it mean to live for Jesus now? And Jesus shares another six parables tonight. Remember, the parables are, are word pictures. And we say a, a picture is worth a thousand words. But, you know, in Jesus' day, they, did, they didn't have cameras. They, did, they couldn't take pictures and so Jesus told stories. He painted word pictures. And, and the parables are like similes or stories where Jesus takes a difficult concept and tells a story so that you make that concept understandable. But the parables also sift people. As Jesus speaks in parables, they sift people because some people see and others don't see. Some people hear, other people don't hear. Some people get it and other people don't get it. And my prayer tonight as we go through these parables is that you'd have eyes to see and ears to hear. So firstly tonight, the, the, the reality of the kingdom. This is what it really means to follow Jesus now, to live under his rule now. That's the parable of the, the wheat and the weeds. Read it with me, verse 24. Uh, Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven, so living for Jesus now, it is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. So the, you've got this smart farmer who picks the best wheat seed to sow in his field. Sounds great. But, verse 25, this man has an enemy. This farmer has an enemy, someone who is sneaky, someone who is stealthy, someone who is going to great lengths to sabotage this field. And so we're told in verse 25, while everyone is sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. Now that wasn't uncommon. In those days, if you hated another farmer, you would just sneakily sow some weed in his field. Uh, the weed is actually what's called a darnel weed, darnel, D-A-R-N-E-L, uh, and the thing about darnel weed is it looked identical to wheat. You take these two seeds, a wheat seed and a darnel weed, and you could not tell the difference. And that's the problem here. You've got wheat and you've got weed in the same field, but they look exactly the same. Until, that is, verse 26, until the wheat sprouted, until it 
starts to bear fruit. And then you can tell the difference. That's the weed, that's the wheat. Now they ask in verse 27, the servants come and say, Sir, didn't you sow good seed? Wasn't this good wheat? So where did the weeds come from? And the answer is quite disturbing, verse 28. An enemy did this, he replied. Not me, it's the enemy. It's a great little parable, and we don't need to guess what it's about because Jesus explains to his disciples down in verse 36 onwards. He says, verse 37, the one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. So that's a title from Daniel 7 for the Messiah. So Jesus, the Son of Man, is the good sower who sows the good seed. Verse 38 is important. The the field is the world. That's really important. So he's not talking about church. He's talking about living in this world, living as Christians in this world. Verse 38, the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom, so the people of God, the people who trust Jesus, the people who know Jesus and experience his grace. The weeds, verse 38, are the people of the evil one, the people who are shaped by sin and depravity and evil. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. So friends, here's the reality of living in the kingdom. It's the reality of living in an evil world where the evil one is still at work. There are two sowers in this parable. One is good and one is bad. One's called Jesus, the son of man, and the other's called the devil or Satan, the evil one. And so like the servants, when we ask, where did the weeds come from? Where's all this evil in this world coming from? Why is this world so debauched and so depraved and so evil, the answer is the devil or Satan. Because he does exist. I think there are two traps that Christians can fall into. Some Christians almost live as though Satan doesn't exist. Other Christians see Satan's hand in everything and anything. Some people Uh, diminish Satan and his work, and and other Christians elevate Satan and his work. And Jesus is getting this pendulum right to say, we we live in in a a world that is marked by evil, by weeds. It's a spiritual world, a spiritual realm, and Satan is real. He's sneaky, he's stealthy, he's called the tempter, he's called the deceiver, he's called the father of lies, and, and his mission is to destroy God's people, to sabotage the wheat, to destroy the wheat. 1 Peter 5 tells us that Satan is is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for Christians to devour. His greatest weapon is doubt, where he he comes to the wheat and says, did God really say that? And is God really good? Or he tempts you, he dangles things before you and says, well, God won't really mind. And and Satan doesn't just pull up the wheat. He's much more subtle than that. He's more deceptive. He, He plants weeds. He plants evil amongst the wheat. And that's the world that Christians still live in. When you become a believer, when you trust in Jesus, you're not just plucked out of this world. You're left in this world, and we coexist in this world. And this world is not all good, is it? We live in a world where evil will mingle with good, where weeds and wheat will live together. And after the horrors of this week and all the horrific events of the week, I don't need to persuade you that this world is an evil world. We live amongst people who 
have hatred and anger and jealousy and rage and despair. But the main point of the parable, I think, is verse 28. The question, verse 28, the servants asked, do you want us to go and pull out all those weeds? Jesus, let's do some weeding. That seems really sensible. Let's get rid of all those horrible weeds. Let's get rid rid of all evil. And Jesus says, verse 29, he says, no. No, don't do the weeding now. Don't pull up the evil now, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. He said the roots are so intertwined, it is too damaging now to purge this world of all evil now. And remember that you can't really tell what is wheat and what is weed until the last day. So verse 30, let them both grow together until the harvest. He's saying that pulling up weeds, pulling up evil today, it seems like a great strategy, but it's not because you will destroy some wheat. And Jesus does not want a single one of his grains to be lost. And I love that, that the danger of living for Jesus is not just the presence of sin in our world today. The danger is actually Christians trying to root out all evil and judging all evil now. It's the danger we all face, that we start to yank up every sinful thing, everything we see in the world, and we're very good at judging the world and say, get rid of that and get rid of that. And as we do that, we, we destroy some Christians in the process. Now, don't mishear me. Of course we must correct error. Of course we must confront sin Of course, you don't ignore evil, but but we should be careful and cautious because judging the world is actually God's job, not our job. Have you ever met those overzealous weeders in the church? The first sniff of sin, and they're yanking it up. Pull it out, off you go, the weeding frenzy. They're the overzealous a righteous person who says, this is the only way to interpret Scripture, and anyone who thinks differently, they're a weed, pull them up, and they destroy people. Or the new convert who is living for Jesus, but they're a brand new convert, and they're still cohabiting and living with their partner. They've just become a Christian, and the overzealous Christian is just so good at demanding they stop straight away and judging them, and it damages them. Or Christians who try to campaign in this world and they shout very loudly on all these ethical issues. They're so determined to weed out all the errors of this world. And again, don't mishear me. We must speak into ethical issues. As Christians, we have a voice into ethical issues, but it's the way that we do it. It's like we're yanking at weeds. And our job is not to Christianize society, it is to evangelize Because the reality is there are many, many, many damaged believers, many damaged wheat who've been yanked up by overzealous weeders. I think of Barry. Barry became a Christian in jail, gave his life to Christ in jail. And when he came out of jail, he thought it'd be good to go to a church. And so he went to a church, and he went week after week after week. But he was just judged by Christians. Because the Holy Spirit was gradually transforming him, but, it, but he was still a sex addict. And he was still struggling with alcohol and, and with drugs and dropping the F-bomb every second word. But that was Barry, but he loved Jesus. But these overzealous 
weeders were just judging him and judging him and judging him. And he thought, I don't belong here. I don't fit in here. I'm not welcome here. So he walked away from the church. And I praise God that he's still a believer today because God has held on to him, but church is not for him. (laughs) Judging is God's job. When you think of the world and the evil out there, let God judge. He's a much better weeder than we are. Our, Our mission is to do the mission that Jesus gave us to do, which is to and they spread love and faithfulness and kindness and gentleness. Uh, John Newton said this, if, if I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, I'll meet some people I hadn't thought to see there. Second, I will miss some people I had expected to see there. And third, the greatest wonder of all is to find myself there. There will be a day when God will judge this world justly. There'll be a day called Judgment Day, and it will be quite horrific. That is the day when God will rid this world of all evil. But it's not now, it's then. And God will divide the wheat and the weeds, the believers and the unbelievers. We don't like it, but it is quite horrific, verse 40. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire... So it will be at the end of the age, on Judgment Day. The Son of Man, that is Jesus Christ, will will send out his angels. They're going to harvest, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And I know we'd like that today, but it's not today. It's Judgment Day. And on that day, they'll be thrown into the blazing furnace, a picture of hell. It's horrific. You should never speak about this without tears in your eyes. There's weeping, there's gnashing of teeth, because it's eternal torment. So our job as wheat in this world is to live as wheat, to shine Christ, to speak of Christ. Our mission is is not to pull up weeds, it's it's to sow love. We get to live amongst the weeds. We get to live amongst people in this world who don't yet know Jesus. And as we sow hope, love, forgiveness, kindness, patience, justice into this world, as we love people, who knows, as Augustine said, those who are weeds today might be the wheat of tomorrow. And that's my experience. The less time I spend pulling up hatred and the more time I spend sowing love, the more attractive this gospel is. So the reality of the kingdom is an evil world with an evil one and there is going to be judgment day. Number two, the influence. The influence of the kingdom because if, you, if, you, if you're living for Jesus, you're part of a movement which is extraordinary. You're part of a movement that has a, had a massive impact and is having a massive impact across the globe. That's our, our next two parables, the parable of the mustard seed and the yeast. Uh, they're what's called twin parables because they, they basically say the same things, but it's like a fraternal twin. I think that's right. A fraternal twin that are similar but not identical. <laughs> Now, Jesus says in verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like, now what do you expect him to say? The kingdom of heaven is is like a a mountain, it's like an army, it's majestic. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Isn't that a bit of a letdown? (laughs) Because a mustard seed is insignificant, it's puny, it's tiny. 
The mustard seed was one of the smallest seeds to exist. It's the size of an eyelash. This seed the size of an eyelash. It, it, it looks insignificant, but Jesus is going to say, from this little things, big things will grow. That is the power of the king of heaven is like a mustard seed. Verse 32, though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants. Just watch it spread. Watch it grow. A massive crop, four meters tall, and it becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. It's going to be spectacular. It starts small, but it's going to grow massively. The same as yeast down in verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast, that bit of leaven, that bit of fermented dough that, that spreads throughout the whole batch. And you mix it, verse 33, with 60 pounds of flour. That's 27 kilograms of flour. Can you imagine that? 27 kilograms of flour with a tiny bit of yeast. And this tiny, insignificant yeast, it spreads through the whole dough and it's growing invisibly. And you can't always see what that yeast is doing. And that is Christianity. That is following Jesus. If you think about it, Christianity had the most insignificant beginnings possible. It doesn't get smaller than a helpless baby born in a backwater town called Bethlehem to refugee parents. And there was nothing spectacular about Jesus. Isaiah 53 says there was nothing attractive about him. He was despised. He was rejected. They, they crucified him. They murdered him. He was dead and buried. And the early church, how would you describe the early church? I think mustard seed is a great term because it was small. It was insignificant. It was just the 12 fearful, fragile disciples huddled together in a back room somewhere. And then the Church of Christ was born. The Spirit lit the flame. The, the day of Pentecost came. And on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people gave their life to Christ. And within weeks of Pentecost, you had 20,000 believers. Can you imagine that? From tiny, tiny beginnings, suddenly the church is growing. And the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so if you're a believer, if you're part of the kingdom of heaven today, you're part of a movement which is extraordinary. Not just then, but now. Here's some stats for you. In 1900, Korea had no Protestant church. And the mission organizations declared Korea impossible to penetrate. Today, 2023, there are over 7,000 Christian churches in the city of Seoul alone. Turn of the 19th century, the, the southern part of Africa was 3% Christian. Today, it's 63%. In Hindu India, 14 million of the 140 million castes, which are said to be untouchable, have become Christians. In Indonesia, the percentage of Christians today is around 15%, but the government won't report that because they're embarrassed by it. And God is at work invisibly, even when you can't see it. Remember when the, the missions were kicked out of China and all the Christians were saying, what is God doing? What God was doing was growing his church. An extraordinary rate, an explosion of the gospel in China. And did you know that every day across the globe, around 8,000 people give their life to Christ? And every week across the globe, 3,750 churches are planted. Sadly, not in Australia, Europe, or America. And don't underestimate 
the gospel growth across the globe, you're part of an extraordinary movement. It's not just the church growth. Christianity has and is having a massive impact on society. That is verse 32, the, the birds that come and perch in the branches of this mustard tree. It's a picture from Ezekiel where the nations find refuge and rest among God's people. Think about that. The nations come and they find their rest and they find their refuge among God's people. They find their security in the church. And I know that Christianity is often portrayed as weak, but it's any but weak. The influence is extraordinary. Here's a brief history of the impact the church has had on society. It was the church that gave us holidays or holy days. It was a church that gave us hospitals because there was a Christians who, who cared for the sick and the suffering. It was the church that established foster care and adoption agencies. It was the church who championed work for all people of all classes. It was the church that gave women greater freedom and dignity. It was a church that gave children significance. It was the church that championed education and schooling across the globe for all people. It was the church that was the most powerful force in abolishing slave trading. And it's a church today that's still the most powerful force in charity work across the globe. Because when you're part of this movement, the birds come and they nest. And society is changed for good. That's the influence of being part of this kingdom. But it's not all good. There's also bad influence. And I think that's here in these parables as well, because Jesus does not tell us an explanation here. And so the birds and the yeast of verse 32 and 33, they, they could be good or they could be bad, or they could be both. Because birds in the Bible are normally bad. Think back to the parable of swords. It was the birds that plucked away that seed. And birds are used to describe demons and the devil. And yeast in the Bible is rarely good. It's often a symbol of evil. You know, beware the yeast of the Pharisees, the hypocrisy. So I think these parables are both the church influencing the world for good and the bad influence of the world being brought into the church. Because as church grows, not all growth is good growth. You know that. As church grows, the danger is that the world starts to infiltrate the church. They nest it in our branches and they bring their thoughts and they bring their ideas and suddenly the church looks more like the world and we start to tolerate sin and normalize sin and we, we cover up immorality and it's horrible. But nothing can stop the ongoing growth of Christianity. Praise God for that. Number three, this is my favorite one. The value of the kingdom. The hidden treasure, the, the pearl of great price. And Jesus is going to ask you a, a, a confronting question. Let me ask it to you. Is Jesus worth everything to you? Is Jesus your greatest treasure? Are you willing to give up everything and anything for Jesus? That's the parable. Verse 44, the, the kingdom of heaven, so living under the reign of Jesus now, is, is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went and sold all he had and bought that field. It's a bizarre little parable. A man's walking through a field, and 
He stumbles across some hidden treasure. He's not looking for it. He just stumbles across it. And then that wasn't unusual. Because in Jesus' day, they, they didn't have banks. So you didn't put your, your money or your treasure into a bank or into a store. You, you hid it. You buried it, often in your field. This man stumbles across this treasure. I heard an amazing story about a man in Suffolk in the UK who is a farmer in the UK in Suffolk, and he lost a hammer in his field, and so he got his metal detector, those odd things that you wander around and beep at you, and beep, 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 beep. Oh, I found my hammer. He hadn't found a hammer. He'd found $5 million worth of ancient artifacts buried in his field he didn't, didn't know about. Still happens. But when this man found... This treasure, he does something odd, verse 44, he hides it again. It doesn't yet belong to him. He wants it, he longs for it, but the only way to get that treasure is to buy the field, and that is costly. And so he sold everything he had. And I I I imagine his friends thought that he was mad, bonkers. You know, have you lost your mind? Why are you giving up everything for this stupid field? And you say, oh, because I found this treasure, and this treasure is everything to me. Worth everything. Same with the pearl. Merchant looking for a fine pearl, the most valuable item of Jesus' day, more valuable than silver, gold, or diamonds. He's looking for pearls. He wants fine pearls. He finds just one, one of great value, verse 46. And when he found it, it's worth everything to him. These are my two favorite parables because did you notice the different ways that these people found their treasure? The first man just stumbled across the treasure. He wasn't looking for it. And some people find Jesus that way. They're not not looking for Jesus. They're not looking for salvation. They just stumble across it. I have the pleasure of leading Alpha every week, and it's extraordinary hearing the stories of how people came to Alpha. One person told me that they were just uh, surfing Netflix about 2 a.m., just checking through Netflix, and this Christian documentary came. I thought, oh, I've never thought about Christianity. Just stumbled across it. True story, a lady said she Googled how to be happy in life. And the top ten of Google was try Jesus. And she thought, oh, I might try Jesus. So some people just stumble across it. Other people, like the, the, the pearl merchant, are actively seeking, looking for hope, looking for Jesus. But that's not the point. It doesn't matter how you find him. The point is when you found your treasure, when you found your pearl, when you discovered Jesus, he is worth everything to you. He's so valued. You'll, you'll sell everything you need to sell to get that treasure. They sold everything, not, not some things, but everything. Nothing was too great. And again, he's not talking about buying your salvation. He's not talking about salvation by works. He said it's that, it's that heart, that willingness, that desire, that longing to give up anything and everything because you found Jesus. And I love that word joy in verse 44. Did you spot it? Then in his joy, he went and sold everything. So this man doesn't dutifully sell his possessions. He's not upset by it. He's not devastated of giving up things. He's full of joy because he's discovered Jesus. People often talk to me about having to make sacrifices for Jesus. I'm thinking, what? Now, of course you make sacrifices, but, but it's not a duty. It's a, it's a joy if you've really discovered the joy of Jesus. Friends, Jesus is the unrivaled, the incomparable, the unequaled, the matchless, superior 
priceless, supreme treasure you will ever, ever find. John Calvin said, the gospel doesn't receive from us the respect it deserves unless we prefer it to all riches, pleasures, honors, and advices of this world. That's what this treasure does. The more precious Jesus is to you, the more joyfully you will let go of all counterfeit treasures. So here's my challenge. Is Jesus really your treasure? And how are you going to show that? You know, you, you can spot a materially wealthy person because they, 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 they wear their wealth on their sleeve. They show their wealth. They, they show their wealth by the clothes they wear, the car they drive, the house they live in, the holidays they go on, the lifestyle they lead. But if Jesus is your treasure, how are you showing that? How are you wearing that on your sleeve? To get personal, in the last 12 months, I have fallen more and more and more and more in love with Jesus. And I've been captivated by him in a way that I haven't been for years and years and years. It's like he's awakened in me a, a new appetite and a new expectation and a new affection and a new taste and a new longing and just this, this joy of forgiveness and this joy of being adopted and being his heir and being co-heirs with Christ and Jesus being my friend and, and my brother. And I've just found in Jesus these last 12 months that he's my everything, he's my all, he's my treasure. Can't stop talking about him. I love him. I long for all of us to have Jesus as your treasure and your pearl. I haven't really got time to talk about the net. It's really the mission of the kingdom. He's basically saying here that when you go fishing, most of us take a line and a hook and we catch one fish at a time. And that's okay, it's slow, it's precise. But if you have a net, a drag net, which is a net that you hang between two boats with weights at the bottom, and it's like a wall, a wall of a net, as the boats move, it just drags all these fish with it. And some are good and some are bad, and you get plastic bottles thrown in there as well. And he's saying, as you live in this world on mission for Jesus, that's what we're here for. We're here to be fishers of people. And of course you can go line and hook one person at a time, and that's okay, that's good, that's precise. But we also expect to be like the net where we just cast the gospel far and wide. Wherever you go, whoever you meet, you speak of Jesus, you talk about Jesus, and you let him drag everybody in. And sometimes you get good fish, sometimes you get bad fish. Who, who, who knows? Who really cares? It's God's job. We're just called to live on mission here in this world for Jesus. So church, please don't settle for mud pies in the slums. Please don't be half-hearted creatures. Please don't have desires that are too, too weak. They just, just long for Jesus, love Jesus. As you live in this, in this world, just know that there's always going to be evil, but, but let God deal with that. And as you live in this world, know that you're part of this movement which is having a huge impact across the whole globe. And as you live for Jesus, know that he is the most valuable precious thing in your life. And what a joy to be part of his mission. Let me pray. I'll give you a moment by yourself to come before the Lord. 
and thank him for your treasure that is Jesus. Father, we're very conscious of the world that we live in and our hearts ache, ache again at all the evil and the depravity that we see in our world. And so we, we ask you, Lord, come, come, Lord Jesus. Would you bring an end to evil, bring an end to suffering? And help us, Lord, to live as your wheat in this world to shine love and kindness, grace, gentleness, justice, so that people might find a treasure, a pearl that is called Jesus. And we ask that for Jesus' sake.